Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, that's happier music than some of the stories that we'll be telling here today. Um, we're going to be telling stories of Puerto Rico, um, and it's maybe a secret history or, or a story that you don't know all that well. I have to say that when uh, the book that started all this uh, plopped down on my desk, um, it, and the book is called The War Against All Puerto Ricans, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony, um, I thought, I think I'm about to read a story that I don't know, and which is sort of odd when you think about the status of Puerto Rico here in America. I mean, you, first of all, Connecticut uh, has a tremendous uh, Puerto Rican population. Uh, of course, uh, Mayor Segarra uh, here in Hartford uh, is symbolic of that, too. And, you know, we, we sort of come and go from Puerto Rico, too. It's a, it's a vacation destination for a lot of people. But I just don't, I, I, as I began to read this book, I realized I don't know this story. I think a lot of us don't know this story. Um, it's enraging uh, in ways that I didn't expect it to be. Uh, and so I, I start, I guess, with a sort of a confession of prior ignorance. Uh, but we're going to tell you some of the story today and how it plays out in modernity. Puerto Rico right now, as some people know, is facing a pretty significant, a huge economic crisis. Um, and, and a lot of it has its roots in this story that starts right at the end of the 19th century. Uh, you could argue that it starts even with the arrival of, of anybody from, from Europe in the New World. But So anyway, let me just uh, tell you who's here with us. I say here metaphorically. In fact, both of our guests, Nelson Antonio Dennis and Marlena Fitzpatrick are in uh, the NPR studios in New York. Uh, Nelson Antonio Dennis is the author of the book War Against All Puerto Ricans, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony. Film director of eight screenplays, including the feature film Vote for Me. Marlena Fitzpatrick is CEO of Editorial Trance and a contributor for um, Latino Rebels. She was born and raised in Puerto Rico before coming to the U.S. in 2001. So, um, Nelson, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, I, I do want to sketch out some of this history. I think it's not a history that every school child in the United States is taught, or maybe even any school children in the United States are taught. Um, it, it does, and, and let's begin it anyway with, with the end of Spanish rule and the beginning of U.S. rule, and really at the end of 400 years uh, of Spanish rule, it looks momentarily as though the jewel of independence is hovering in the air for Puerto Rico, uh, and then they wind up as a possession of, of the United States. And and maybe we can pick up the story there and just uh, I'll let you tell it your own way. And we could be here hours, obviously. But I mean, part of this is it seems as though the leadership of the United States, both political and business leadership, uh, first of all, overlapped heavily and saw this mainly as as something that could be exploited uh, for uh, for its cheap labor and its fertile soil. And, and and not much else, not even really looking at the people who lived in Puerto Rico as real people. Almost, I mean, you, we do encounter in some of the, the, the passages in your book, some of the, the documents that you've unearthed, terms like savages to describe the people who were living there. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, that's a, an excellent departure point. Um, it was, it, it was, those feelings were expressed on the floor of U.S. Congress and on the front pages of the New York Times. And the words that were used were savages, headhunters, cannibals, um, and it was a perfect groundwork for Manifest Destiny because, as you know, once you 
minimize or even dehumanize another people, that then is, becomes a prelude to plunder. And that happened really quickly in Puerto Rico. And it was just part of a larger fabric of manifest destiny. The way it played out in Puerto Rico was um, just by a divine coincidence, there was a huge hurricane, uh, Hurricane San Siriaco, which is one of the most devastating hurricanes in, in that century. It destroyed the entire island's coffee crop in 1899. This was one year after the American occupation. There was no hurricane relief. And instead, the United States devalued the Puerto Rican peso that said that they had to turn ev- and, and all of their currency in exchange for American dollars and declared unilaterally that each peso was worth only 60 American cents. These are two currencies that had equal buying power. <clears throat> so this was a c- complete straight-up uh, devaluation of 40% of the national wealth of every every individual, everyone on, on the island. Imagine how that would resonate through a an, an any economy in this country it would it's inconceivable what you would have would be, would be a con- complete shutdown of any society you'd have riots you uh it would bring that 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 nation to a standstill that's what happened in Puerto Rico the very next year in 1901 they enacted a an unprecedented property tax called the Hollander bill which basically which made it unsustainable for the farmers to continue. So within within just within two or three years, you have these series of events, a hurricane, a currency devaluation, a, a steep property tax. What the net result of this was that the farmers lost their lands within 20, 30 years. 80% of, a, of Puerto Rico's farms were owned by foreign, i.e. United States banking syndicates. And the leader of it was the first civilian governor of Puerto Rico. Charles Herbert Allen spent all of 17 months of Puerto Rico, ran up to Wall Street, instituted himself as a vice president at uh, Morgan Guarantee Trust, and within 10 years was the treasurer, then president, then chairman of the board of the American Sugar Refining Company, which today we know as Domino Sugar. Yeah, so Charles so Herbert. That'll Her- give you an idea, right? Charles Herbert Sorry. Allen's a great symbol of all this. I mean, we talk about revolving doors uh, up here. This is the, sort of the most incredible revolving door ever. He's the first uh, civilian governor uh, of Puerto Rico, uh, and then, as you say, just flips right over into. Uh, one of the great economic manipulators uh, of the fortunes uh, of Puerto Rico. And so what you wind up with is the replacement of um, a, a patchwork or a, of family farms engaged in different kinds of agriculture. Uh, within Over the course of a few decades, you get these kind of monoculture sugar plantations that, as you say, are no longer owned by native Puerto Ricans. They're owned by, by big syndicates, by big banking syndicates uh, controlling all the land. And so we're we're fast forwarding. I mean, we're kind of telescoping through this story. It's a longer story, and the book is a, a tremendous read. But the other thing that starts to happen is that you, first of all, get people uh, in Puerto Rico pushing back a little bit, say, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> You're taking our land away. We're working these. We've become your cheap labor. We're working these uh, incredible uh, days uh, in the hot sun uh, on sugar plantations uh, and, uh, you know, with mosquitoes, uh, you know, flying into our mouths and, 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 and finishing the day sweaty and exhausted and having very little to show for our labors. So they begin to organize themselves uh, along the lines of nationalists. They begin to form these these early groups that are seeking some other kind of life. And and the pushback comes pretty quickly. I mean, we the 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 sort of the US backed um 
police force, uh, uh, you, they push back pretty quickly. And you start to have a series of very, very disturbing massacres. Uh, and I don't know if you want to tell the story of the parade in Ponce as, uh, as one of the examples. Um, yeah, but to get to that, let me just sure. um, give um, bring the, the title of the book into focus. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, the, I, Pedro Albizu Campos was the first Puerto Rican to graduate from Harvard and from Harvard Law School. He's a br- brilliant man, and he's very I- idealistic. He returned to Puerto Rico, and instead of making a fortune, he essentially practiced poverty law, representing poor people, and pursuing his his principles, which were American principles, which are the right of of, of sovereignty and uh, and national uh, manifestation. So he he uh, became the president of the Nationalist Party. They, he was ignored by the United States. Uh, big deal. You've got this guy down there. He's advocating. He's writing editorials. He's organizing. But it does. It's you know the, the America went uh, went went on its way. But when he led an island-wide agricultural strike mm-hmm. in 1934, that resulted in the in doubling the wages of the Puerto Rican macheteros, the sugarcane workers, from 75 cents a day to a dollar fifty a day. It was 15 cents for a tenant for, uh, per hour. Um, then suddenly the United States took notice. They sent down a new chief of police named E. Francis Riggs and a new governor named uh, a U.S. Army general named Blanton Winship, and they completely militarized the police force. And here's where the title of the book comes. The title is War Against All Puerto Ricans. Well, that was announced by Police Chief Riggs during a press conference after the police assassination of four nationalists in October 1935, Riggs told the press that if the nationalists cont- and Pedro Albizu Campos continued to agitate for higher wages and to advocate for independence, that there would be war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. And um, th- that's, that's a, basically the, the framework of this book. It, it discusses that war, how and why it was waged, and as usual, it was mostly about money. And, and so, it, and it scales up into, to 1950, where uh, once again a story that a lot of Americans don't know, including the actual bombing uh, of uh, of what is technically U.S. soil. I mean, the U.S. bombing its own people, bombing its own soil. Uh, we'll come to that in a second, though. But before we get to 1950, we have these these you know really bloody, disturbing incidents. I mean, that 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 militarization of the police force isn't just a symbolic gesture. I mean, it's. It, it it winds up turning against people who are beginning these first stirrings uh, of uh, of insistence on some kind of different status. And so you do have, well, I mean, this just ter- I, if you want to just quickly tell the terrible story of this parade, I think on Palm Sunday, right? Yeah, and that was your, your question earlier. There was a series of massacres. There was Rio Piedras Massacre, Ponce Massacre, the Utuado Massacre. Uh, Rio Piedras was the, was the open-air killing of four nationalists right in, in, in broad daylight. And after that is when E. Francis Riggs declared his war against all Puerto Ricans. Just a, a few months later, uh, in, in 1937, on Palm Sunday, in a peaceful march down the street of Ponce, just two or three blocks from the town square and to the church, which is the direction in which they were marching, a about two or 300 unarmed Puerto Rican civilians, many of them waving palm fronds, had come come from all parts of the island to celebrate that day and to express their support for Albizu Campos, who at that point was in jail um, on charges of seditious conspiracy of the United States. But basically what he was in jail for was for having led that agricultural strike. 
Well, the Puerto Rican, the nationalists were there um, at the last minute. And they, see, this is where the, the, uh, the drama comes in, but also the underlying complicity. Uh, because if you didn't want people to march, you would tell them two or three days ahead of time. You wouldn't, you wouldn't issue a permit and then revoke it when they're right there in the street. So what, ha- what were the, the physical reality of the, the Ponce massacre, as it came to be known, was that there were over 100 extremely well-armed uh, uh, insular policemen and FBI agents. There were about three dozen of them that, w- that were uh, Tommy gun trained, and they, were, they posted themselves on opposite sides of the streets and created a, a killing zone that no, basically no one could, could escape. There was nowhere else to go. And when the marchers, uh, when the nationalists and the marchers started singing La Borinquena, which is the Puerto Rican national anthem, that was apparently the, the, the signal to the police because they immediately started shooting. They kept shooting for about 13 to 15 minutes. They killed 17 of these unarmed civilians, men, women, and children, shot many of them in the back, clubbed some others in, in the head. One woman was clubbed so fiercely that her ba- brain spilled out into the street and people kept slipping on it, and, and ma- wounded and maimed over 200 other Puerto Ricans. This was a, basically a, a scenario of state-sponsored terror specifically intended to, to, to strike fear into the, in the, the rest of the island so that no one would follow Albizu Campos. And they were, they were willing to do it openly. And in fact, they were so contemptuous that the word that went out that was printed in the New York Times, the Detroit Press, virtually every paper in, in America said that it had been a, a race riot, a nationalist riot, that the nationalists had shot and the police were acting in self-defense. There was an entire, entirely opposite government-sponsored narrative that was simply reiterated by the American press. Well, they, they, tried, the to, old, they tried to photographically stage kind of fake yeah. uh, a, a riot, right? Yeah, and that's uh, sort of a, a, a new... Uh, a, a new iteration that I, that I was able to piece together in my book um, because I studied and I was able to assemble all these photographs and I became it became glaringly evident that the police chief or de Orbeta had simply rearranged corpses to have these choreographed photos that made it look like the that they the police were looking for nationalist snipers, which was impossible because there were no guns. They, the, uh, a, an investigation was finally held because of one photograph that was taken by a guy named Carlos Torres, who was working for El Imparcial. Interestingly, in El Imparcial, the whole newspaper shut down for 10 days. It did not publish for 10 days after the Ponce massacre. And this is intuitive on my part. I'm making an inferential leap, but I'm... Uh, it uh, seems evident to me that some death threats were issued and some other per, uh, persu- other compulsion was made because it, if it took 10 days for this newspaper to come out with this photograph, it's because there was a lot of behind-the-scenes behind pressure and negotiation and people trying to figure out what to do in order not to have someone knock on their door and kill them. When this, when this one photograph came out, which showed the police shooting from every direction, including the Tommy gunners, that is when the world finally knew that there had been a massacre in Ponce and that the U.S. government had been lying about it. 
You know, um, Marlena uh, Fitzpatrick, I, I do want to bring you into the conversation here. Growing up in Puerto Rico, going to school there, um, are these stories, uh, including the 1950 revolt, are those are these stories that uh, the average Puerto Rican school child will know? Um, obviously, people here in the mainland U.S. probably uh, are, are not taught them. Well, um, well, first of all, I wanted to tackle into something you said earlier. I'm, I'm looking at Nelson. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what in the historical perspective that he has brought in in that context, I mean, there there's sim- so many similarities of what's going on now mm-hmm. in modern times within you know even in the U.S. Um, in Puerto Rico, so. What is going on here with Wall Street being into politics, we can actually see has happened in Puerto Rico, you know, before our time. Um, Going to your question. So I have to say there is a decorated version of events Mm -hmm. in the historical, uh, on this history timeline. I definitely will adopt more Nelson's um, true telling. And even if there are some speculation of what might have happened with the imparcial. There may be some truth to that. So I'm not saying that there are smoking mirrors when it comes to um, hiding, you know, this this information, but there's definitely some... um, flowery versions out there in in the history of Puerto Rico being taught in public schools. I I am a product of public schools, so I'm particularly just (laughs) talking about that. So, um, yeah, uh, and I have to say, when it comes to the public education in Puerto Rico, um, they, it is very, also very, the Tainos, and the, I don't know, Nelson, if you can tag, uh, um, you know, if you can tag along here, but it is all about the race composition and the racial construction within our um, DNA. And frankly, if, if there's anything positive there is that we, we acknowledge that we are very mixed. Um, there's uh, the history of, of slavery, although there's some flowery, um, decorated things, you know, very upbeat. Um but these things are very hidden um, as as true forces, absolutely. Um, I want to get to the story of 1950, but before I do that, I want to say we're live here in the afternoon. Uh, if you're listening here between 1 and 2, uh, you can call in if you have questions, if you have comments, uh, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. So, um, Nelson... I, I, the, the one, <laughs> I'm laughing. It's kind of a bitter laugh. The one piece of American history from the 1950 revolt that every school child in in the U.S. is taught is that there was an attack on the Blair House, right? That's you know, you grow up in the United States, you do know that there was attack an attack on the Blair House uh, uh, in Washington while President Truman was in was living there due to White House renovations, and and maybe if you have a good memory, you remember that maybe it was Puerto Rican national. It was somebody, you know. That's about what people know if they know anything. And and once again, reading your book and realizing, uh, understanding kind of for the first time, I'm embarrassed to say, everything that led up to that, that that was really the end of a long sequence of events led by this uh, this man, this remarkable man that you've been talking about, this guy who uh, came uh, – uh, North uh, graduated from Harvard and Harvard Law School as its valedictorian. I think spoke six languages. Uh, was actually involved in the uh, Irish independence movement to a certain degree too, and 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 came back to Puerto Rico and just sort of gave it all 
uh, for his people and spent a lot of time in, in, in a very terrible prison uh, for his trouble. We'll try to tell all that story, but maybe you can sort of, uh, you're very good at sort of compressing and sketching out these events. So, so walk us through 1950. Well, Marlene is jumping out of her skin because she's Irish Puerto Rican. So. There you go. I'm Fitzpatrick. <laughs> I, I was aware yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe you can oh. just uh, give us kind of a sense of the events of 1950. Well, you have the economic prelude. Uh, the, uh, we, the underpinnings were set as to why uh, th- this wasn't just a, a manifestation of uh, hot-tempered Latino blood or some some. Um, uh, uh, some Caribbean boredom, and uh, which is very often the way you, we, and I would say that I'll, I'll include myself because there's public imagery that we, the osmotic transfer that we even we don't realize. As a, I'll give you an example, um, I watched uh, growing up. I watched John Wayne. I saw cowboys and Indian movies. I used the term without knowing what it meant, Indian giver, mm. uh, and so it's really easy to to uh, to. To create that perspective, and in fact, despite the assassination attempt on his life and the bombing of two towns in Puerto Rico, President Truman dismissed the whole thing as an, quote-unquote, incident between Puerto Ricans. Well, this incident involved a revolution that spread through eight towns, including San Juan, Ponce, Arecibo. It included the assassination attempt on President Truman, the attempted assassination of Luis Munoz Marin, the governor of Puerto Rico. The United States suppressed it so quickly in such a coordinated fashion that here up north we barely it, it barely resonated. It was some sort of disturbance, something that was going on down there. And when you you have to you have to make an empathic leap down to 1950, uh, we were still separated by an ocean. There were very few commercial flights. There was no television. There was certainly no internet. We so separated by a language, an ocean, a culture, and 400 years of history. The situation in Puerto Rico was was one step further than Las Vegas, where whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, whatever happened in Puerto Rico never Stay. happened at all. Right. And so there was this complete cognitive break between the island and any uh, our life, uh, our, our American history here. As an example, Puerto Ricans were declared citizens in 1917, just in time to serve in World War One, mm-hmm. and yet... The U.S. Constitution was deemed by the United States Supreme Court to, in 1920 to not apply to Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico was an insular possession of the United States and therefore not subject to constitutional privileges and immunities. So it was w- within that framework of basically not not existing. You've, if you remember Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, that you look right, he's right in front of you and you don't see him. Well, this is an invisible island. And Pedro Albizu Campos made it the interesting distinction that somehow owning a man made made you a scoundrel, but owning an entire island made you a, a colonial benefactor. And it was that sort sort of unwitting uh, imperial arrogance that Albizu Campos was struggling against. He spent 10 years in jail at, right immediately after the Ponce massacre. He was shipped off to Atlanta Penitentiary, got out in 1947 in December. Barely few, uh, oh, tumultuous crowds, about 20,000 people met him dockside in San Juan. Within three or four months, to shut one man up, Pedro Albizu Campos, they abrogated the First Amendment rights of the entire island. They passed a law called Public Law 53. It was called La Ley de la Mordaza, the mm. gag law, which made it illegal to sing a tune, whistle a tune, say a word, hand out a leaflet, 
or even to not even wave, forget wave, own a Puerto Rican flag in your own home the size of a postage stamp. It, w- it authorized the police to come in, break down your door, find the flag, charge you with seditious conspiracy against the United States, and, imp- and, and, and subject you to 10 years imprisonment. That law was not always applied. It was used selectively, but it was used to, to essentially terrorize the entire island and keep the nationalists, uh, uh, keep basically a Chinese wall again, uh, around the nationalists so that nobody would deal with them. When Albizu Campos came back from jail, they passed this, ga- this gag law 53, and they surrounded Alb- Albizu Campos with round-the-clock, seven-day-a-week FBI agents. There was usually about five or six agents following him everywhere he went. And anyone that came into physical contact with him was, quote-unquote, debriefed, or it was more like interrogated. People were arrested just merely for trying to, to speak with Albizu Campos. So he was, so he was completely encapsulated, hermetically sealed, so that when he came back, that seed of independence, that voice that he had, that principle that he, that, that he, uh, in, uh, that, that he incarnated, would not spread through the Puerto Rican people again. So they had to do something symbolic. We, the United States had just was the leader of the free world, had bombed two towns in Japan. There was no way that anyone could uh, could confront and defeat the nuclear power of the, of the United States. But what they were doing in 1950 was symbolic. They needed to get the attention of the UN Decolonization Committee so that the world could see that there was something wrong in Puerto Rico, that this this fast track to what they called Commonwealth status, the ELA, Estado Libre Asociado, was merely a fraud and a cover mm-hmm. for an actual colonial apparatus that would then continue in perpetuity. The, and the, this plebiscite was in place, and Puerto Rico was on track to have a referendum vote on this Commonwealth status. So a degree of urgency started to kick in, and at that point, Albizu Campos, who was surrounded by the FBI, he and the nationalists decided they needed to do something dramatic, something that would that would capture the world's attention and galvanize some world opinion around Puerto Rico. And that's what led to this revolution. And then the rest is this very violent history that happened all within the space of one weekend. Um, maybe I should you know, give the floor to Marlena a little mo- a moment, but we can talk about what happened during that revolution. All right. Actually, we'll give the floor to her. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we will uh, do that. And we'll tell that story, as uh, w- w- time permitting, and, and we'll talk about a lot of other issues as they manifest themselves today. <laughs> Uh, we're back. We're telling uh, some of the story of the history of Puerto Rico. And we're also going to talk a little bit about modern-day Puerto Rico, uh, about um, its future uh, and the various visions for its future. We'd love to hear from you as we go along, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Actually, before we sort of even plunge into this, we do have a, a bunch of calls coming in here. I'm going to try to take one or two of them. I think this one is from uh, Francisco in Newtown. Hi, you're on the air. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Good. Um, I like your topic today because I'm from Guatemala, and the same thing kind of happened out there in the 1950s with the CIA and the United Fruit Company. And, and you know, it, it is about greed and money sometimes. And uh, we, we fought a, like a gorilla kind of fight over there for like 40 years. 
Um, and, and it was sad that, you know, uh, sometimes uh, our government did this kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, this is this is a story that repeats itself um, in a lot of different countries. Uh, although for me, Nelson, to, you know, when I think of a word like des- desaparecidos, this idea of people who just disappear, maybe I think about Guatemala or El Salvador or, or Nicaragua at various times during the histories of those countries. Uh, in your book, I was very shocked to, to read that term about people who just disappear um, uh, applied to, 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 you know, part of the United States. You just don't think of that happening here. Um, no, and, and it's like the, it's like proving, disproving a negative. It's very difficult to the desaparecidos to speak because they're no longer here. Mm. And it's, it's, it's especially hard when it's an island that's three or 4,000 miles away and it's, it's speaking a different language. And by way of Guatemala, there's just a little, uh, part of my book that's devoted to United Fruit and I agree 100 you can't couldn't have picked anything better uh, as an as a reference point by 1942 United Fruit owned 75% of all private land in, Gua- in Guatemala plus most of Guatemala's roads power stations phone lines the only Pacific Pacific sea fo- seaport and every mile of railroad and this was just in the country of Guatemala mm. and uh it was an interesting model that we've seen repeated. What the CIA would, the word filibuster uh, originally meant going down and staking a fake, a fake revolution in a country that was actually a disguised right wing takeover. That's what the word, if you look it up, what filibuster, the, 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 the progeny of that word. Well, there was filibustering all over Central and South America for 50 years before the CIA was known as the CIA. You'd have these operatives that would go down and figure out ways to turn brother against brother. And that was done in Puerto Rico as well. Uh, and it's just a self-repeating a pattern. The United States walks away and says, well, we had nothing to do with it. It was those crazy guys down there. No, they were right in the, mid- in the middle of, of, of sowing this dissent and then reaping the benefits. Um, Marlena, let's sort of vault here into the present. Um, uh, Puerto Rico obviously has tremendous problems right now economically uh, and demographically um, and no real clear path for its future, right? There's just this kind of ongoing debate uh, among people on the island, um, even about what's the most desirable thing to do, to be independent, to be uh, a state. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how that political question plays out here in 2015? Well, um, first, I wanted to um, tag something that Nelson talked about, Pedro Alviso Campos. Um, Pedro Alviso Campos um, ended up being murdered, basically. Um, And I am a true believer that you can kill a person, but you cannot kill an idea. And that's exactly why in modern times today, and I am... I am actually demanding and asking politely for the release and the freedom of Oscar Lopez Rivera, which is our political prisoner. Um, He needs to be returned home to his family in Puerto Rico. Now, going to your question, the um, one of the things that and I call it the never ending treadmill is that all of this um, history that Nelson has uh, bullet pointed us at in his presentation and in his book, is that one of the effective things that it has done, and I'm being very sarcastic, by the way, Mm. is that we as a nation or as an island or whatever you want to call us, Commonwealth, we oppress the oppressed. 
So it has created a culture of dependency and a mentality of colonialism and commonwealth and there's nothing, there's no work, there's nothing and we all need to depend on the, we call it la madre patria, you know, but la madre patria is us. Now we call it the United States because that's who we are dependent on at this point. Um, one of the things that I have noticed and I lived myself is that what Puerto Rico has become for people my generation and younger is a, I call it the education warehouse. Let me explain. So you get quality education, a higher education in the university. Um, it is affordable, but there's no work. So you don't have any other choice but to leave. So, um, in my case, that's why exactly why I'm sitting here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah, that's exactly. I did my bachelor's degree in the University of Puerto Rico Calle Campus, and then I did my master's degree in labor relations in the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico. Um, and then my second master's degree, I had to do it here in in UTEP, in the University of Texas El Paso. Um, but I am. I am one of many, many, many hundreds of thousands highly educated Puerto Ricans out there that cannot work. There's no opportunity at home. We have to venture in other lands. Um, now, one may argue, well, you know, a lot of people do that from Japan and other countries. However, as Nelson pointed out, it is a lot easier to have cheap labor for someone that is already an American citizen. And that's what we've become in this country. The young, highly educated, cheap labor for many corporations in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it is incredibly sad. Um, in Puerto Rico, and Nelson, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll bring, you know, the 936, you remember that in 1993, uh, the government, uh, governor at that time um, wiped that out and decided there are no, going to be no more tax breaks and whatnot. And a, a company started, you know, their exodus and their way out. Um, and what it ended up doing is affecting people like us. This gen Actually, that was the year I graduated from high school. Mm. <laughs> so I remember going into the university going, and what next? Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I am going to bring up my particular forte, and you can all make fun of me, but I'm an artist, and I studied music. <laughs> and, you know, the, being an artist right now is probably the synonymous of being, you know, uh, dying of starvation. It's a very tough thing. Which it hey, shouldn't be. Marlene, I, didn't, I don't want to interrupt, but we've got a lot of callers here, and a couple of them have to leave here. I want to see if I can get a few of them uh, on the air. This is uh, Suzanne, who is, I think, calling from maybe from Philadelphia. Hi, Suzanne. You're on the air. Yeah, I pulled over in a no-standing uh, thing because I, I just wanted to mention that I also knew nothing of the of the history. Uh, you know, I had an uh, American education, knew nothing of of the history, even the general history of uh, Puerto Rico, um, until the Francis Tavern bombing. Um, and I don't know whether I've got it mixed up with something else, but um, it, it was is it F L A N or something? Um, that, Nelson can probably help you out there. The Fuerzas Armadas de la Liberación Nacional, mm -hmm. the United Forces of National Liberation. And it was and yes, the yeah. yeah, And that was what opened my eyes to the fact. I was like, what? It's there from where? I mean, it's like, I couldn't, I thought, yeah. I didn't realize, I never had put my head to it at all. I didn't realize that 
the, the sense of oppression. I, I knew about the problems of immigration in the United States, but I didn't realize at all what was going on in the country. And it was right after sort of like all, all 60s protests and, and the Black Panthers and, and uh, the FBI going after those people in Philadelphia and Camden. And, and anyway, but the FBI set their marks on, on that because it was by Wall Street, and the Wall Street people could not have their – you know, lifestyle. I mean, they would go after a bombing anyway. But I mean, so it was like they just shut this thing down, and and ten years later, no one was talking about it. I don't think. I mean, maybe. And um, anyway, it just seems funny to me that it's, it's so close, Puerto Rico. People go back and forth every day. You know, that you can get a daily flight, and and there's so many wonderful things about it. And and yet we don't even we have no sense of this other other life that's going on there and um anyway so i also feel uh i'm glad that there's a book and i i feel i identified immediately with collins um not exactly shame but you know wishing that we had not been so naive about the world that's so close to us thanks for your call suzanne that was great hey uh, just while she's on that uh, uh nelson one thing we haven't really had time to talk about one of the things that that you unearthed uh, and and write about is the, the long long involvement with the FBI in terms of infiltrating um, nationalist movements in Puerto Rico and monitoring uh, um, and bugging. I mean, there's even after he gets out of prison in Atlanta, you mentioned he's in a hospital. It turns out the hospital room is bugged. Uh, that the FBI, maybe most people in the United States didn't know very much about Puerto Rican nationalism. J. Edgar Hoover was really interested, right? Yeah, and actually, this relates to that point that the, the caller just made. That it's really you, we can't blame the victim. We are all uh, um, subject to lack of communication and information. So there was a degree of ignorance about what was happening on the island, but it was a structured ignorance. It's it's no one's fault if that information isn't pr- promulgated, isn't made available to you. And so that's what the FBI was right in the in the middle of that. They were atomizing people, separating them from each other marginalizing people, families, one member against the other. They, in, J. F. Edgar Hoover created a program called the Carpetas in the Puerto Carpetas, Rico. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Carpetas became famous. A, a Carpeta is a secret police file that is opened on you, and you may not even know that it exists, but it is so highly detailed that it is the equivalent of a masterful Internet search into your life. It would con- It would contain all manner of... Um, amazingly granular detail about your everything about you, your relationships, who you know, your your family life, if you have a mistress, you have your debts, anything. So, and they were they were open specifically to 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 oppress nationalists and to keep anyone from joining the nationalist party, because once you had a carpeta opened on you and someone and, and word got around, you would get fired from your job. You might have to leave the island. Your family was tainted. It was a, a, an instrument of tremendous social and political control. And the fact that the FBI, over a period of 40 to 50 years, opened over 100,000 carpetas. Think about that number on an island that had only a population of 2 to 3 million people. 100,000 carpetas totaling 1.8 million pages. It goes beyond the mere information that is in that file. When you think about how they're constructed, they're based on informants. And those informants weren't the FBI or even the insular police. Those informants were Puerto Ricans. So the FBI created a situation through compulsion, bribery, uh, uh, threats of turning brother against brother, brother against sister. 
And so when you when you have people that are, that are afraid and looking over each other's shoulder and con- concerned about which member of my family is, is telling on me, is snooping into, into my personal life, you have an island that is unable to organize, to advocate, and to make its case. And this was one reason why, where you see these sort of Hail Mary passes, these long, dramatic gestures, such as Albizu Campos ha- creating a, a revolution in 1950 that went so far as including an attempted assassination of the President of the United States. It's precisely because you're suppressing the means of communication so you can have this message go out through normal channels. And that was the, that was the, the result and the intent of the FBI Carpetas program. We got to take Can a quick I break. Of, oh, yeah, just do it really quickly, Marlene, and then we got to grab well, one more break, so we'll have a little bit of time on the other side. But yeah, go ahead. No, what I wanted to say is real quick: um, the things that Puerto Rico has lived, which are the things that Nelson are saying, is is exactly what we're fighting for here right now. NSA, um, voter ID registration in Puerto Rico. You need an ID to vote. You need your digital, your digits. Um, it is the things that we are fighting in this country right now have already happened in Puerto Rico, and that is a shame. All right, so we'll grab a quick break. We'll come back with more of both of our guests, plus your calls, 860-275-7266. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Kelsey Bissell. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ricky Martin. For show pages and articles, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose has a conversation about weight. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back. We're telling uh, perhaps the story of Puerto Rico that you have not heard before. Uh, Not the story that, to the extent that I was taught anything about Puerto Rico as a school child growing up here in the U.S., and not the story that I would have been taught. Uh, Our guests are Nelson Antonio Dennis. Uh, His book is The War Against All Puerto Ricans. Uh, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony. Marlena Fitzpatrick uh, contributed to Latino Rebels, born and raised in Puerto Rico before coming uh, to the U.S. in 2001. Um, we do have a lot of people calling in. I'd like to get a few of these voices on the air here. Here's a Victor calling from Hartford. Hi, Victor. Hi, Colin. Uh, I just wanted to call and say that uh, many years ago I was down in Puerto Rico on the uh, south coast studying marine biology at the uh, La Pagera <clears throat> Research Station, and I had an opportunity to participate in uh, something called the Pridal Project, which was an underwater habitat <clears throat> where I spent two weeks on the bottom of the Mona Passage studying uh, fish. And I came away with the totally convinced that the La Pagera Shelf in Puerto Rico is the best place in the world to begin growing fish in structures on the seafloor. And I'm very optimistic about that, but very pessimistic because there seems to be absolutely no interest in it, either in Puerto Rico or the rest of the Caribbean. And uh, it's, you know, looking forward, uh, one of the commentators mentioned about there's no work in Puerto Rico, nothing beyond agriculture and tourism. And I would like to hear some comments about the possibility of that future. I think I should point out that La Paguera, which is a huge shelf over 100 square miles, the word means yellowtail snapper, and it's one of the 
top-of-the-line carriage house trade fish in the world. Well, okay, thanks for your call, Victor, and obviously we don't have uh, experts here on growing fish on the bottom of the ocean. On the other hand, um, his point maybe is one, uh, as Puerto Rico looks at its uh, future, uh, Marlena, uh, uh, entrepreneurial um, stuff would be really great, um, but in some ways, it seems as though certain aspects of its political structure need to be sorted out at the, at the same time. Um, and, and maybe we could just sort of uh, take a moment to say a little bit more about how that debate's unfolded in Puerto Rico. It seems as though whenever there's a plebiscite or a poll or something like that, uh, I think the one in 2002, 54% uh, didn't want to continue the way things were. And of the people who were picking from three different possibilities, I think 61% wanted statehood, right? There's probably more people in Puerto Rico right now who want statehood for Puerto Rico than pure independence or anything else. Would I be right about that? Um. It, when it comes to the reflection of what the um, end result is of the percentage, then you are correct. Mm. I don't necessarily believe that is a reflection of what people really want. I think people really, really want to stay exactly as we are. There is a culture of dependency. There is um, this idea that big, you know, we are, we have a passport and all that. But there's this cultural pride of being Puerto Rican and the music and the food and the language that people don't want to give that up. And some some folks may tell you, well, which is what statehood or los unionistas out there speaking in Irish mm-hmm. <laughs> will, will argue is, well, we're not geographically immersed there and we will preserve all those things. Um, and some may argue, no, 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 they're going to implement English and we're going to have to pay federal taxes and what. So there are many components into this that is um, out of misinformation. If you take those layers out, that result may change. I personally believe that the best thing that can happen is, you know, becoming our own independent nation and and draw up a template, you know, of to to grow further. There is a lot of education that needs to happen. And part of that is to layer all of that and, and weed out the misinformation and actually have a a thorough, strong educational campaign. I may draw from my own personal experience, Editorial Trans, which doubles as Editorial Trance. One of our ideas with Charlie Vasquez, who's our um, CCO, is to, you know, do a digital um, bilingual publishing platform and help everybody that has creative fronts. And it could be a short story, it could be anything, literature and even music, and, and bring it to the forefront. Having said all this, we're in New York, and we're here, and we're based out of New York, but we definitely look at Puerto Rico as our, our, another hub. Mm. Um, in having worked in the art and entertainment industry for so many years, I can tell you one of the things um, that has helped and now hurt is uh, so many laws that have to do with theater, that have to do with film, you know, that they're very famous, the very famous tax breaks for film productions. And there are many, many uh, films, Pirates of the Caribbean and Rum Diaries that are being shot there and they get 40% tax return. So you have all these Hollywood productions that are spending millions and millions of dollars. Um, how does that affect that they bring in the manpower? They are not hiring our own. Mm-hmm. So the, t- the idea was to actually provide more work for our own artists. Mm-hmm. And it it's just backfired. 
So now people, that now these productions are no longer coming here. And what happened, well, here, Puerto Rico. And to that, at the point that Colombia, to mention two countries, Colombia and Dominican Republic, our sister countries that we love dearly, have better tax breaks um, laws. So now these productions are going there to film. Uh, before um, we run out of time here, and uh, um, we've only got a minute or two left here, um, Nelson, I just sort of, sort of want to come back to the story that that you you tell in your book, the story uh, of uh, of the quest for nationalism and, and the war that that it turned into. Um, as you look at Puerto Rico in 2015, um, it, it does seem as though the the dream of your hero, Albu, uh, the, the kind of protagonist of your book, uh, Albizu, I can't even say it, Albizu Campos, is Albizu, uh, Albizu Campos is is not there anymore. I mean, do you still see any of the spirit that informed 1950 uh, in Puerto Rico now? Well, the human spirit is inherently indomitable, so mm-hmm. that that that's a constant. Um, I think the most immediate and and uh, effective expedient is to have prior congressional commitment to honor whatever the result of the next plebiscite will be, because nothing is more glaringly colonialist than to ask an entire island to speak and and declare its voice and its intentions and then to have them ignored by the U.S. Congress. So since we don't have much time and to go into the into the nuances of one status alternative versus another, I'll simply, simply say I think my feelings are inherent and fairly explicit in the book. But whatever result is obtained, I, I feel that the only sense in this is to have a prior, on-the-record, congressional commitment to honor that result, no matter what it is. And frankly, it should. I think that the one, the one objective, the one option that is no longer sustainable, that is a proven dysfunctional relationship, is the current Estado, li- Estado Libre Asociado Commonwealth status. All right, we got to go. I'll leave we, it at that. We got to stop it there. Thank you so much, Nelson, Antonio, Dennis, uh, Marlena Fitzpatrick. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the nose. <laughs>